Hello, this is Coach Aaron Saft in the MR Running Pains podcast. Excited for my guest. His name is Phil Ladder. He is co-author of the book Running Flow. Uh, Phil and I have a history together, so our uh, <laughs> um, our conversation was very light and jovial. <laughs> um, Phil and I have known each other for quite a long time. Our wives went to medical school together. Uh, and we've run together uh, for countless miles. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> really enjoyed my conversation with Phil. Uh, very excited that he has uh, two books out, uh, Running Flow. And uh, he wrote uh, another book with Pete Fitchinger. Um, and uh, man, he's a talented author, uh, very caring human being, as you'll hear about. And uh, just really uh, has some great stuff to share with us on, uh, flow, finding flow, um, and, you know, how we can do so. So, um, I want to thank Phil for, for coming on for his time and for sharing his passion and his knowledge. And, uh, here's my conversation with Phil Ladder. As I said in my intro, I am welcoming to the show, Mr. Philip Ladder. Mr. Ladder, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me out here on your front porch to record a show. <laughs> Absolutely. This is a, a live show. We are face-to-face, which we don't get to do very often, which is awesome. Uh, so if you guys hear some background noise, <laughs> that is, uh, that's the compound here at the Saft Household. Yeah, yeah. A <laughs> little, little bit of thunder in the background, so uh, we'll try not to get any uh, lightning explosions or anything going on during the show. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And um, let's start off with about Mr. Phil. Yeah. So um, when it comes to running, I've been in the sport, I guess, since sixth or seventh grade, um, but I was a really pudgy middle schooler. So I was I was more of a shot putter, long jumper, 100 meter type. I uh, ran my first 400 meters in a pair of air walks in eighth oh. grade. Went really well. Had like a 730 mile time in PE uh, around the school parking lot. So um, nice. I didn't get into running until my freshman year in high school basically wanted to impress a girl and a couple friends, you know, that typical story, and uh, got into it, had a little growth spurt, and uh, quickly found my passion, um, and I grew up in the suburbs outside of Chicago, um, which had a really competitive running scene, so getting into the sport and, like, kind of seeing it at the higher level, like, kind of coincided, so I got excited about the competitive side, and <laughs> as I got more into it, that's when I kind of found the love of the sport that has like really emanated over the last 20 years or so. Um, but got recruited, got a thousand dollar scholarship to UNC Asheville, took it, was excited to explore a different part of the country, found the mountains, loved the mountains, have tried to never leave the mountains since. Um, but yeah, so I, I competed at UNCA, had a one big South title, a couple school records at UNCA, um, and then moved into the coaching ranks um, at Radford University in Virginia. And what was that. your undergrad? I'm sorry. Um, so I had a master, not masters. I majored in creative writing and, and creative. had a minor in sociology. Okay. Um, and then while I was coaching at Radford University, it's next door to Virginia Tech, so I got a master's in sociology while I was there. Um, and yeah, really enjoyed coaching. Um, did not enjoy the D1 politics, even at a mid-major school like Radford. Didn't like cold calling recruits didn't really like that side of the sport so um when my wife who's a physician had an opportunity to do a really cool residency program out in colorado we really jumped at that opportunity um and i ended up getting in with the high school program and i knew nothing about it i had not really studied the high school scene in colorado very closely (laughs) um but somebody saw an ad for a position 
I went in. I was just going to be a little assistant coach at Fort Collins High School. And then um, about 30 minutes before the uh, little interview, I thought maybe I should look at this team and what are their PRs. <laughs> and I realized they would have beaten all my collegiate athletes. Um, they had gotten ninth and seventh at Nike Cross Nationals wow. the two previous years. Um, so I was a little intimidated, um, but got the position and um, ended up having like just this dream experience at Fort Collins. The girls got third at Nationals that first year in Cross that I was there with them. Um, and I got to record that as a journalist. So that was that was really cool to kind of see both sides of it. Yeah. Um, the boys were, they were a train wreck. Um, and that's actually <laughs> what I got hired to help with. Um, so the first year I was there with them in cross country, we got 14th at state or 13th at state. Um, the next year they won state and got fourth at nationals. Wow. So it was just, again, just had amazing experiences with these high school kids. But what I really loved about high school is, you know, we had, we had seven girls, I think, who were 19 minutes and under on our, on our varsity team. But our coach was just as excited about the girl who was breaking 27 minutes for 5K or who was finishing her first race without walking, you know. And, and that's the thing I love about it because, you know, running can just be this transformative yeah. sport. And, again, it really was for me. Um, like I said, I was kind of a pudgy, awkward kid, and the awkwardness took a little bit longer to go away, but running played <laughs> a big part in that. And I'd had health problems when I was a kid, and running really kind of helped me get, get past some of those things. Nice. Um, and, yeah, so just as – as the years have gone on, I really fell in love with, with high school coaching and working with kids that age. Um, and then we moved back to the Appalachian Mountains, um, and that is the proper pronunciation. Sorry <laughs> for anyone who's listening to this north of Virginia. It's, it's Appalachians. But, um, yeah, we just, I, I, just, I just love those aspects of it. And so I got yeah. to coach at a couple really small high schools in, in North Carolina. And that's been fun, taking <laughs> programs that didn't exist to third at state. And then um, I live in Brevard, just down the road from, from Mr. Saft here. And, uh, yeah, we won two state titles and had, had one stud guy who went on to run at NC State, awesome girl who went on to Alabama, another stud guy who went on to UNC Charlotte. And just kind of seeing them have that, that progress and that success and just seeing it kind of be a, like something they're always going to look back on. And not just, hey, I ran fast, but, like, I was valued and mm -hmm. I mattered to a team. Um, and those are things you can't really teach. So, um, But, yeah, you know, I made a kind of a big shift a couple of years ago. Um, as you'll hear when we get further into this interview, like, you know, psychology is something that's really important to me. Not just, like, the nuts and bolts of it, but, like, why it matters. Um, and mental health matters a lot to me. You know, I've got a family member, actually multiple family members who have struggled with diagnosable mental illness. But in particular, um, you know, I've had a family member with bipolar. And kind of seeing the world turned upside down from that really got me interested in, hey, how can I help families? And how can I help people who are going through these mental illnesses themselves? Um, so a few years ago, I went back to school at Ohio State. Um, God bless virtual education. I was doing <laughs> Zoom before it was cool. Um, and I uh, got my master's in social work from the Ohio State University. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, it's just been a whirlwind. And now um, I gave up coaching at the high school level last year to take a position as a school-based therapist. Nice. Um, and I work in, the, in Brevard um, at four different schools and just help kids with anxiety, depression, PTSD, OCD. You kind of name it. We probably <laughs> see it. Um, but there's so many parallels to running and just giving kids that kind of sense of belonging and validation and resilience. And so I had noticed that was kind of the, what I was getting more out of coaching. Um, but there was this really big glass ceiling above me saying, Hey, you know, <laughs> don't talk to my kid about their depression. Like that's not your role. You're a coach. Sure. Um, so 
<clears throat> I wanted to be able to break through that glass ceiling, and so it's been it's been really rewarding. Um, but I love running, and so I can never actually leave <laughs> this community or stop running. So, you know, I'm I'm here, um, and I love. That's one of the cool things about what we're going to talk about today. Flow is it's yeah. this kind of awesome intersection between athletics and psychology. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a great tie. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I was a writer for 10 years. Yeah. Well, you didn't touch on that. I didn't touch on that. I, I, I will say that real briefly. Um, when I was in Fort Collins, um, I, I had an opportunity to start journaling about our team for, um, for Diestat, which was a high school running. I guess it is now, again, a high school running uh, website. And I just got to do this, like, chronicle of the season. Um, and that gave me a portfolio. And so I pitched an article to an editor at Running Times. Running Times is owned by Runner's World. And, yeah, so that led to some incredible <laughs> experiences. I got to go to Kenya for two weeks. I got to interview um, Olympic silver medalist Leo Manzano in Austin, Texas, for four days, which was just super <laughs> cool. Um, and I've just gotten to interview some of the best minds in the sport and some of the most colorful characters. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And so um, I, that then parlayed into writing two books. One was Faster Road Racing um, with Pete Fitzinger, who has huge following, probably. I know this is an ultra-focused podcast, but for those of you who find 26.2 miles also very fulfilling, uh, <laughs> Pete Fitzinger is one of the prophets um, in that field. Um, yes. and, then, and then I got to do Running Flow, which we'll, uh, we'll be talking about here right. in just a moment. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, there's there was a lot there. So that's why I wanted <laughs> Phil to unpack all that for us and, and kind of talk to us about his background because he has a very a very diverse background. But you can it all makes sense when he describes it. So awesome. well put. Thank you. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're we're going to talk about flow. Um, why don't we start out with uh, our definition? Yeah. So. It's great. Um, the father of flow, I'm going to pronounce his name. We are not doing a spelling test here. Um, but if you are spelling it at home, um, his name is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. It is, the last name is C-S-I-K-S-Z-E-N-T-M-I-H-A-L-Y-I. It would make a great internet password. Um, but Dr. Mike is how we is how all his colleagues call him. It's what all his students call him. Um, he actually just passed away last year. Um, was an, an incredible guy. But I got an opportunity to work with him, um, and he kind of came up with the idea of flow. And his base definition is that flow is an optimal experience um, during which the mind and body work harmoniously while engaged in a specific task. Um, so we're going to unpack flow momentarily, but I, I think that's probably – um, the best way to kind of succinctly yeah. sum it up. Right. Now, can you talk about Dr. Mike for a second? Yeah. So Dr. Mike um, lived a very full life well into his 80s um, was still teaching um, even just a year or two ago. Where was that? Um, at Claremont University down in uh, California. Okay. Um, and has been all over the place. He was associated with the University of Chicago, um, some other big think tanks as well. Um, but in the 1960s and 70s, he um, kind of became fascinated by the fact that kids seemed to play because it made them happy. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but at that time, a lot of the research was behavioral-based. And so there was this idea that kids were just playing because they wanted to mimic what adults were doing. And they were working hard just so that one – or they were playing hard so that one day they would have adult skills for adult tasks. And Dr. Mike kind of threw that upside down and said, you know what, I I think the kids are playing because they enjoy it. And they're in these make-believe lands for hours on end. And they love it. Yeah. Um, and like this has, they're doing it for its own sake. And so he was like, well, I wonder if, you know, what happens when they do things for their own sake? And he noticed, you know, the kids are totally immersed. They seem very happy. They're content with themselves. They're not thinking about other things. 
Well, when are adults most like that? Because we all talk about wanting to have these childlike qualities. Mm. And so he, he came up with this really cool, like, beeper system. Um, and basically, like, every 15 or 20 minutes, these um, research participants would, would get dinged. And they had a little journal. And they were supposed to write down what they were doing, and then they had like some scales to rate, like how emerged, you know, how immersed in the task are you, you know, where, where what are your thoughts right now, what are you doing, all, all these kind of things. And what he found is that people, when they're doing meaningful work, are way more engaged when they than when they're just like sitting at home on the couch. But that's also giving them more satisfaction and more fulfillment. So even though people are constantly saying, "Man, I can't just wait till the weekend to just go home and sit on the couch," <laughs> they weren't actually happier when they were sitting on the couch. <laughs> they didn't. They weren't getting that sense of fulfillment and value um, because because it's just lazy mind sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so you know, that monkey brain sort of thing <laughs> that people talk about. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, it, it's it's pretty cool just to see that you know people aren't always doing something for some external gain. Sometimes people just do things because it it makes makes them feel good. We'll talk yeah. about that later. It's called an autotelic experience, but yeah, it's just you do things because you like them. Right. And they bring you joy or satisfaction, right. Right. or they have a, a, a lot of meaning to them. So yeah, yeah. So. I don't know if you listen to the uh, Growth Equation podcast. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm gonna so, give Brad Stahlberg a shout out right now because Brad lives nearby, and we need to all we need to all hook up. I yes. think we need to do uh, a big yeah. thing. And I've interviewed Steve Magnus for running time, so let's make this happen. <laughs> you guys are awesome. listening. We're gonna make this happen. <laughs> They had a, a great episode, I think came out today, and I'll put it in the show notes, um, that talked about kids and what's the difference between, um, oh gosh. Um, yeah, the Norwegian system. The Norwegian the system. system. Yeah, 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 exactly, for kids and uh, youth sports. And yeah. it was awesome. I, you know, I, I loved the conversation and the emphasis that they put on, you know, kids should just be allowed to, yeah. to play and just do, you know, without the worry about mm-hmm. this is going to end up as, you know, a college scholarship right. or, you know, it's right. like they should enjoy sport for sport, right? Right. Well, and this concept that the the coaches themselves are not going to be rewarded or, mm-hmm. or, you know, put down upon if their kids aren't succeeding in a right. youth sport game right. because the yeah. outcome doesn't matter. We right. just want the kids to have fun, fun. and learn right. the skills. Yes. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. I'm not saying I was listening to that on the drive over here, but it <laughs> may have happened. Well, I'm glad you listened to it because yeah. yeah. I, I thought that was a fantastic episode. And like I said, I'm going to put that in the show notes because uh, I'd love for everybody to listen yeah. to the episode you know, especially if you have kids, I think it's, you know, it made me take a step back yeah. and, and think yeah. about my own kids, you yeah. know? So, um, so we, 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 now we have our definition of flow. Let's talk about your experience with flow. Yeah. So, um, it's funny. Usually when I get to do this talk, another little facet of my life is that I got roped into doing a talk at a running camp and found out it was like one of the most enjoyable experiences of my life to talk in front of like 400 people and just be a raving lunatic telling them about my flow experience. Um, so you're not going to have all the bells and whistles. You're not going to have the uh, song Flow by Queens of the Stone Age just <laughs> randomly blare on the speaker. But um, the basic retelling of like what made me interested in flow happened on, I know this date, it was January 24th, 2003. It was my brother's <laughs> 17th birthday. Um, and I'm racing at UNC, and my life is pretty much a dumpster fire at this point. Um, I'm breaking up one long-term relationship. I've met my wife, but like, like we'll call it a, a, a love triangle. I don't know what you want to call it. It wasn't good for anybody involved. Okay. okay. Um, so that's not going well. Um, it's the second race of the indoor season, so I'm not sharp by any means. And I'm coming off a cross-country season that just ended in like 
implosion. I mean, I thought I was supposed to get like fifth or sixth at conference. I, I got like 40-something. Had a side stitch, pretty much limping it in. I mean, it, it ended badly. So I definitely have the motivation to do well. But like if you compare my high school PRs and my college PRs after two and a half years of solid training, because this is my junior year, I have made very small progress. Gotcha. <laughs> very little gains for a lot of hard work. Um, but that hard work, as we'll see, you know, it, it matters a lot. So I get on this day. It's at the UNC um, Fieldhouse, which is like a football field by day. They roll up the football <laughs> fields. Hey, look, there's track underneath it by night. And I get, I'm supposed to be in the slow heat. I'm the fastest runner in the slow heat, which is like every like a runner in college's nightmare. You're like, I'm not interested in trying to sit and kick for a win. Like I thought we were going to run fast. And so I come back like 20, 30 minutes later to get my bib number. They're like, hey, we, uh, there was a scratch. We bumped you up. You are now the slowest person in the fast team. I'm like, <laughs> okay, sweet, let's go. And uh, didn't notice anything particular on that warm-up. Um, but I had one of my college rivals, a guy named Jeff Fairman, um, who just did some 100-miler himself and is doing really well um, after a long hiatus. But he got – he was in all purple. He ran for High Point University. They looked like, not, not Oompa Loompas, I guess purple people leaders, something, just like purple head grimace. to toe. Yeah, Grimace. <laughs> no McDonald's shout out, but he looked like Grimace. And the gun goes off, um, and there's an NC State runner, Devin Swan, his big shaggy hair. He's coming back from injury. I've got Jeff Fairman, the guy in purple. And these guys are really good runners, and I have not proven myself anywhere near that. I'm coming in with an 8.56 PR for the 3,000 meters, which for those of you who don't run the 3,000 meters all the time, it's like a 9.35 two-mile. So I get in this pack, and we just start whipping through 33-second 200-meter laps. Okay, So this is like 66 quarters. Yeah. And I come through the 1,000 meters in 2.45. I remember just looking at the clock and being like, hmm, it's really fast. <laughs> and there was a guy from Campbell University, and I always throw this graphic up. It's like, this is a guy from Campbell University. On this day, he runs 8.45. That's 11 seconds faster than my PR. And when this guy, Mike something, comes up alongside me, my whole thinking is, okay, I've probably gone out a little too hot. Now the legs are starting to feel this a little bit. Maybe I run with Mike. And I, This is probably not legal, but it happened. My college teammate was definitely in lane four. And this is my crazy Canadian teammate, Carmen. <laughs> and Carmen is out there, and he is going to give me the most prescient, wise advice that I've ever heard. Because this honestly changes the trajectory of my entire life. <laughs> he looks at me in lane four. I'm in lane one. He points at the lead pack, and he goes, stick with them, man. <laughs> and for some reason, those words in that moment stuck with me. And I was like, I am. Yeah. I'm going to stick with them, man. Like, goodbye, random dude from Campbell. I got to go. <laughs> so I hop back on the back of the, this, this lead pack, and we, we get through the mile, and the clock says 428, which is interesting because that's my high school PR. <laughs> I'm like, hmm, okay, I guess we're at this point. So we keep going. Next thing you know, I've got a They Might Be Giants song playing in my head. <laughs> I love playing the song for the kids because they're like, what in the world is which, which little, little Birdhouse in your okay. soul? Make a little birdhouse <laughs> in your soul. Not yeah. to Find a point on it. Yeah. And my my now wife um, had made me a CD right before this meet, and that was one of the songs oh, okay. on there. And so now that's like joyfully playing through my head. <laughs> I get to three laps to go. I have this very in, like vivid thought of as long as I don't wipe out on the, the, rail, the rail on the inside of lane one, things are probably going to be good. Right. So getting under 400 meters, I'm like, okay, something really good is happening. This is amazing. All right, we're going to go full steam ahead. And I could get on the final straightaway, so it's like 250, 260 meters to go, and purple's there. 
And this whole time, the only other thought I've been having besides everything I've just told you is stay with purple, stay with purple, <laughs> stay with purple. So with 200 meters to go, I can still like my arm hair just raised a little bit. I'm like, I'm going with purple. I'm going to take him down. And my God, he blew me away. I mean, Aaron, he just slaughtered me in the last 200 meters. He put like two and a half seconds on me. It was glorious for him. And I crossed the line. And, you know, you, you got to wait for a second. But they've got like a big cl- like um, like projection screen display going on the time. Sure. And then like suddenly it says like place five, ladder, comma, Philip, UNCA, 832.62. Oh, and huge. Deal. I just start <laughs> running around like a lunatic. <laughs> I'm like 832, 832. Holy bleep, bleep, bleep. 832. Oh, my God. And I realized in retrospect, like, there had to be a lot of people who were like, he's really happy for fifth place. Wow. Never seen a fifth place finisher that excited. Um, But it was was something, like, so transcending. Like, you're like, what just happened? Why did I feel the way I did? Why did the fastest race by 24 seconds after years of training feel easier than any of those other races that were slower? And so, talking to Carmen, our wise guy out in lane four later on, he's like, dude, you experienced flow. And I'm like, yeah, I was flowing. He's like, no, idiot. Like, flow. Like, it's a concept. you got to look this up. My brother told me about it. And so, yeah, I did. And, like, from there, like, I became, like, mildly interested in it. And then I started coaching. And I was like, ooh, this is – I want to share my experience. But it needs to have a framework. can't be like, hey, guys, I had a really good race. You should too. Like, (laughs) let's figure out what happened. And so the more and more that I learned about flow, like, the more it was like, wow, this is such a cool phenomenon. And I want to share with people – there's no how-to manual on how to experience flow, but there are certain things that set you up for it. Um, And so – I don't know, become a flow evangelist at running camps and got to write an article in Running Times. And then that's what kind of led to writing my second book, which I got to write with Dr. Mike and his um, very awesome um, PhD, PhD student back then, now a professor herself, um, Christine Duranzo. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how we got, got through a magical flow experience to writing a book and sitting on your porch 18 and a half years later. <laughs> and, you know, just uh, about the book for a second, how, like, talk about the process for that. How, how long did that take? Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's about a six-month process, Was it? I would say. Yeah. Um, they kind of give you intermittent deadlines like, hey, can you get us chapter one, two, and three by this three-week block or this month block? All right, chapters four, five, and six. How about that? It's a month later. And then there's an editing and review process. And we actually had an editor that, um, like, switched jobs midway through the process. <laughs> um, so in some ways, the book is not as fine-tuned. I would like. I mean, I know everybody says that about their books, but like, I kind of thought I was writing more of a first draft mm. when me and Christine were working on this. Yeah. Dr. Mike was very much an advisory role. Okay. Um, he's not a runner himself, um, but he's the one with the New York Times bestseller. <laughs> he should probably be the first author on the <laughs> yeah, right. on the book. Right. Um, but the knowledge that he had passed on to Christine was just like beyond invaluable, and she knew where to find every bit of research to to kind of back things up or challenge our preconceptions. Um, And so what we ended up, what ended up working really well is Christine really knew the nuts and bolts of flow. And I really knew the nuts and bolts of running. Mm -hmm. And then we had some nice overlap, kind of imagine that Venn diagram. There's that sweet spot. So I would bring to her what I thought made the most sense for a certain part. She would back it up or challenge it with all this different research. She would write her section of the book. I would edit it. 
I would write my section of books. She would make sure everything was factual. And we kind of got one consistent voice by, by doing that kind of back and forth. Nice. Um, and then Dr. Mike would look over stuff and kind of give us his, he's like the Godfather, yeah. give us his blessing, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Nice. So that was kind of the process, but yeah. Um, Human Kinetics actually pitched this book to me okay. um, and said, go find a co-author. <laughs> it, was, it was one of these, we're not saying you're not well-known enough or talented <laughs> enough to write this on your own, but no one knows you. Go find someone who's got the bona fides. That's right. And we got two great, two great people to That's work cool. on the project. Yeah. So it's, they have letters behind their name. Yeah, they got. I got letters now, but uh, they're still not as pretty. They don't start with a PH and end with a yeah, D. D. So, it's all good. <laughs> cool, man. Um, so yeah, so let's let's dive into the components of flow. Yeah, yeah. So there's nine um, components of flow, um, and there's kind of. Um, block them off into two groups. So you have your antecedents, so things that have to be in place in order for flow to happen, um, and then your process outcomes, which are going to be what's happening because you're in flow. Okay. So the antecedents, and these are the ones that are going to be most valuable to the to the listeners because this is what sets the stage for you to be able to experience flow. So you got to have clear goals. you got to have a challenge skills balance that works in your favor, and you have to have unambiguous feedback. Um, and we can kind of you know, pull that apart in a second. Um, and then real quickly, the process outcomes are focused attention, merging of action and awareness, a sense of control, a loss of self-consciousness, a distortion of time, um, and an intrinsic motivation, which is called an uh, autotelism or uh, having an autotelic personality. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, let's, um, we probably want to jump into what those three antecedents are, yes. though. So um I'll interview myself here. What's a what's a good clear goal, <laughs> Mr. Ladder? <laughs> um, so, clear goals. You know, you've a lot of people use smart goals. You know, that kind of specific, measurable. Um, you know, realistic, time bound, all that good stuff. Um, those are very helpful. Um, and like, there's been good research on like uh, New Year's resolutions. One of the reasons people only keep like seven percent of the New Year's resolutions that they make are because they're so vague. Mm-hmm. So. If you show up and you're like, I'm going to lose weight. Okay, well, how much weight? Over what amount of time? Right. Is it realistic given your lifestyle? All these things. Like those have to be in place. You know, quitting smoking or, you know, mm-hmm. anything that's too vague is not going to get you there. Right. So having um, some, some process-oriented goals yeah, along that Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, people will talk about A, B, and C goals, and those are awesome for, like, the big dance. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we want to have those process goals in place, too. So if I tell – if I say, Aaron, I want to hire you as my coach. Um, I want to run a 50-miler. You know, right now my long run is 20 miles. If you go out and assign me a 30-miler – and I only get to 25, I can't look at that as an absolute failure. Right. I can't have this black and white thinking. I need to know, well, hey, I was at 20 a week ago. Yeah. You've gotten me up to 25. I know if I trust the process and keep having these little check marks along the way, right. I'm going to get to 50, and it's, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, those process goals are great. So if you say you want to lose, instead of saying, hey, I want to lose weight, that's too vague. Right. You're going to want to say, hey, I want to lose 10 pounds in the next six months by doing X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And if I'm 150 pounds right now and I want to get to 140, well, can I be 147 by the end of September and 144 by the end of November? And, you know, by the time the new year rolls in, am I at 142? Like, because right. you need to have, you, and it's not just that you need to have like waypoints on the way, but if I'm still 150 pounds five months from now that's a very different goal than what i set out for uh, totally. i gave myself six months to lose those right. those 10 pounds but i'm i've, I've lost zero yep. 
So, and, and it has to be something that's you know uh, has meaning to you, like a why. You, you have to have a huge why, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like any running goal. Mm-hmm. You have to have a why, and mm-hmm. then then we set a how, which is going to be your process, right? right. And then uh, the you know the, basically the what is your overall goal. Mm-hmm. Right. The one thing that I will caution with this is that, like, the goal doesn't have to be so specific or so measurable as to the fact that it becomes like all encompassing on mm-hmm. you. So like I, I came in that day, I remember very distinctly my goal for that race was to break eight forty five. Um and anything else would have been gravy. Mm-hmm. You know? Um but I hadn't been training for years just to break eight forty five. I've been training because I love running because I wanted because there's this mastery orientation mm-hmm. that I'm sure you you talk about too with your clients where you, you're trying to get the most out of yourself. And that's a goal in and of itself. What's what's awesome about these measurable goals or smart goals is that they're they're just kind of giving you a little bit of direction. They're they're setting the stage. They're making it clear so you can look at it and say, well, am I doing what I said I was going to do? And if I'm not, it's going to be a it's going to be pretty clear there that yeah, there's there's more room for yeah. for growth or development there. Yeah. So. Right on. That's, that's, uh, yeah. I mean, goals, we could probably do a whole podcast yeah. <laughs> just talking about goals. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so um, I'll resume the uh, interview. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, so um, challenge skills balance. Yeah, so depending on which flow researcher you ask and which realm you are in, um, it's probably going to change as to which of these antecedents is most important. To me, it's challenge and skills balance, though. Okay. Um, and here's why. And I'm going to use Aaron as an example because it's fun to use Aaron as an example. <laughs> and he's many of your coaches, and it's fun for him to be on the other side of this. So if uh, – imagine kind of um, an XY axis, okay? And we've got challenge on one of the axes and, er, and skills on another. If I have super low skills – and a super low challenge. So Aaron, let's say for this example, has not been running for six months. And I ask him to go run in the Susie McCombs local 5K that's run around a farm field. And there will be 10 participants. So there's no skill because Aaron hasn't been running for six months. And there's no challenge because it's the Susie McCombs 5K around a farm <laughs> field. He's probably going to be pretty apathetic. He's not going to care. Okay. <laughs> now let's move up to a different side of the axis. Let's say that Aaron's skill is super high. He's been running 120 mile weeks. He's been, he feels great. He's actually been doing some speed work on the roads and he's nailing his trail runs. Like life is good. And he goes to the Susie McCombs 5k around the farm field. He's going to win by like 27 minutes. He's going (laughs) to lap the entire field 12 times. And knowing that Aaron's going to be very relaxed, almost too relaxed. So in that case, yeah, probably not going to have flow in either of those because in one case you have no skill to bring to the table and in the other one there's no challenge. Now let's make the challenge high. I don't care how much Aaron's been running. We're putting him in the Olympic 5K <laughs> or the Olympic 10K or the Olympic marathon. Aaron is a wonderful, amazing athlete. He's also a 40-plus-year-old trail runner. <laughs> when he gets on that line next to Eliud Kipchoge, who's you know in 201 marathon shape, He's going to be shaking in his boots. In fact, everyone listening to this podcast is going to be shaking in their boots. And that is going to lead to the opposite of relaxation. It is going to be fear. It is going to be tense. It is going to be pure anxiety. So now, let's say Aaron is running great mileage. And Aaron is a natural 100-mile runner. And we put him in a trail race like a hellbender, like a UTMB, like a hard rock, you name your awesome, mountainous, <laughs> grindy 100-miler, 
Aaron's going to stand on that line, and he's going to know he has the skills. He's going to know he's prepared. He's going to know his age is not a handicap, and he's going to know the other people in the field are going to bring out the best in him. Um, and that's one thing Dr. Mike talked about in his first book is like if you go back to the uh, Latin definition of competition, it means to seek together. You know, that's what it was. You know, um, a lot of people during the pandemic found out really cool things about themselves. They went and did these solo races. They went for the FKTs. Right. And man, that can bring a lot out in you. But man, how much more do we get when we're in a race with others? And honestly, there's totally. kind of this. There's kind of this um, onlooker effect, too. Now, even when you're doing something by yourself, you know they're going to see it on Strava <laughs> or some other thing. And so you're not as, as alone as you might have been once upon a time ago. Um, but just, just knowing that you have the skills to meet the challenge at hand or the challenge is just a little bit farther out there. And that's what happened to me at Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I ran a positive split race. Like my, my second half was definitely slower than my first half. And that's because I could not keep running, you know, 32s and 33 second laps, <laughs> but sure. I could keep running 34s and the adrenaline. And we'll talk about the feedback in a second, but all the good vibes, the stick with them, man, all this stuff is pushing me in the same direction. And so suddenly I believe that I have the skills and that's that they have found in the research is just as important as having the skills themselves mm-hmm. is believing that you have the skills to compete with the people you expect to compete with on a given day. Um, so that's why to me, challenge skills balance is, is really important. Um, but you can still have flow experiences, even if your skill level is lower than you want, because you can modify your goals. You know, you can modify what that challenge is. You know, mm-hmm. I would love to run 230 for a marathon. I'd love to run 234. In the shape I'm in right now, it's not happening. Could I get myself psyched to run 245? Probably. And I could probably have a really rewarding flow experience because I'm going to tailor it down to where I'm at at that moment. And if my physical limitation is 245 and I butt up against it on that day, I'm going to be feeling pretty proud of myself, you know? Yeah. So Nice. Yeah. yeah. But uh, that makes complete sense. Um and the uh, unambiguous feedback. Yeah. So unambiguous feedback does not have to be good or bad. It just has to push you in the same direction. That's the unambiguous part. So I often think back to what in the world was going through my college coach's brain when he was watching me run these laps at a pace that's faster than my mile PR. Like at any point he could have said, Phil, just settle in. That would have been a totally reasonable ask for a coach to tell his athlete when he sees that he's in way over his head pace-wise. And if, you know, Dean Duncan was my coach, if Dean had said that, I probably would have listened. I probably would have respected it. And I would have run with that kid from, from Campbell. And we would have kicked to see who could run 844 that day, (laughs) you know, and that would have been great. And maybe we'd still be having this conversation, but I I don't think we would have. Instead, Dean just kind of stood there and nodded a lot. (laughs) He was really good at smile and nod, smile and nod. A lot of you're good. You're good. Every lap, you know, when you run a 3K indoors, that's 15 times for someone to say, you're good. (laughs) And and he did. And again, my college teammates snapped me out of it by saying, stick with them, man. It, it pushed – it's that same direction. It's saying, no, you're good enough to be with that pack. What your body was saying 10 seconds ago before your legs felt heavy is what we believe about you now. So go ahead and stick with them. Yeah. You know? Um, and so that's, that's kind of the unambiguous feedback. Now, if I am in way over my head and people tell me, hey, you need to back off just a little bit and that's what saves my race and I'm able to listen to that and internalize that feedback and make good things happen from that, that's just as good. You know, yeah. um, but you just you need to kind of be aligned mentally with the feedback that you're getting inside and outside. 
Um, and I'll give a real brief example of when feedback didn't line up. So I did uh, the Peachtree Road Race one year. Sure. In Atlanta. And it was the USATF 10K Championships that year. And somehow they put the mile markers in the wrong place. Oh. And so I go out the first mile. It's like 450 or something. I'm like, wow, and it's downhill. First mile. First couple miles are downhill. So I'm like, okay, we're in this thing. We're rolling. This is great. And I feel like I'm running the same exact pace on the second mile. And I come through in 520. And I'm like, oh, uh-oh. I guess I slowed down. So now I'm like, okay, I got to, you know, don't press, but, you know, try to get a little bit more out of you, get a little bit more out of you. Third mile is like a 530. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Okay. It's falling apart, but it's okay. The fourth mile, I think, is where Cardiac Hill is. There's like a hospital on top of the hill, and it's like uphill, and it's foggy and humid because it's Atlanta in the summer. You're just like, oh, this is so drenching. And it's like a 610 mile. And so now I start doing math. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to finish in 35 to 37 minutes. This is bad. I think the fifth mile, again, it said like 530. I don't know. That one might have been right. I get, But now I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to seriously run 36 to 37 minutes. This is the slowest race I've ever done since my first year of college when I was like not prepared at all for a 10k um and there's this like area where the photographer is up there and they're they're taking pictures overhead and I remembered my um old college teammate had told me that was like maybe 600 meters to the finish or something and I'm like okay don't even look at your watch just go like you know I'm getting close I get to the finish line and I'm running like 33 something I'm like what in the world just happened and if I had just listened to my lungs and my legs I would have been fine, yeah. but I became so consumed with this feedback that was inaccurate yeah. that right. I just tanked my own race. Yeah. And in retrospect, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, wh- why did I let that affect me the way it did? You yeah. know, I, d- I didn't have a GPS watch back then, but even still it was like, why did I, why did I freak out so much? Like, why did I not just trust my internal computer? Right. And so, yeah, you just, you need that feedback going in the same direction. And, you know, if I'd had a GPS, I probably wouldn't have trusted it that day anyway. But like, it's the USATF 10K. <laughs> Surely they have this accurately marked every step of the way. Um, but, you know, maybe I would have been like, oh, nope, nope, that's probably off. Everything's fine. Right. Because I didn't and because I had two different lines of feedback going, like, it just, it scrambled my brains. Yeah. And had a bad day because of it. Right. So that's, that's a good example. Yeah, that is a good example. All right, so that's our, our antecedents. Yeah, that's our. Antecedents. You sound really smart when you say it. Say it again. It's our antecedents. Lovely. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, I've known Aaron for twenty years. Anyway. <laughs> our wives went to medical school together, so <laughs> that's, that's where uh, we we met. Um, yeah, I told Aaron my three uh, K PR uh, our first time meeting. He was bench pressing. He was jacked. <laughs> um, I was moderately terrified of him, and uh, I was like, you know. We'll, He's like, what have you run? I was like, oh, you know, 832 is probably my best race. I ran a 1447 5K. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 no. You know, I once ran an 837. I was like, oh, cool. And then he's like, for the steeplechase. And I was like, oh, cool. (laughs) So you run as fast as I do while jumping over 36-inch barriers and leaping over water pits. Awesome. Uh, We are practically uh, the same. (laughs) We still had a great time. We did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well... Um, let's get into the uh, the process outcomes. Yeah, yeah. So these process outcomes are, are what's going to happen when you're having a flow experience. And actually, they can kind of cue you in that you are. Um, so some of them are going to be focused attention. Um, you know, in our society right now, often very hard to stay focused. There's these <laughs> magical little devices called cellular phones. They distract a little bit. Yes. Um, and we tend to have a lot of... ADHD moments, even when we don't have ADHD. Right. Um, What's awesome about a flow experience is you are so immersed in the activity that you're doing that there's no room left for it. 
runners have this. Rock climbers kind of have to have this. Mm. Um, and that's an example that I like to give is that when you are climbing the face of a, you know, some sheer face and you're not roped in, even if you are roped in, but let's just go ahead and say you're not roped in. You're probably not thinking about what's for dinner that night. You're definitely not thinking if your girlfriend thinks you're cute and should post a picture of you hanging from the rock face on Instagram that <laughs> right, night. Right, right. You're thinking, where is the next handhold and foothold that's going to ensure I don't come plummeting off this thing to my instantaneous death? <laughs> right? And so rock climbers are very good at getting into flow. So are alpine skiers. So is anything that really requires the full immersion of your brain. Mm. Um, and part of that is... Um, Arnie Dietrich is this really cool um, researcher. I think he's in like Tel Aviv, Israel. But his research has shown that like um, using these um, functional MRI scanners, okay. like parts of your brain literally shut down when you're having flow experiences. Um, I think it's called the prefrontal cortex theory, something or something. <laughs> it's it's in my notes somewhere. Well, we won't link anything to it in the show notes, I promise. But <laughs> it's called down regulation. Um, and um, basically, your brain starts shunting off blood to different parts of the brain. Like it's basically telling itself, focus on what's important to keeping you alive mm. and immersed in the task and divert blood flow and energy from everything else. So prefrontal cortex, that thing that's making you like think all these higher thoughts. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's going to winnow down. Um, it is also responsible for like your sense of time and a lot of other things. So as you're sort of down-regulating, the activity itself becomes all-consuming. Um, so that helps you keep attention on it. Yeah. You know? so, it, let me ask you too. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was running, but I was listening to an audiobook, mm -hmm. and I became immersed mm -hmm. in the audiobook mm -hmm. and totally forgot about running. Like I, yeah. I was like, you know, all I could – just I had the just you know these awesome memory you know, just pictures in my head of what the mm -hmm. the author was describing you know and all of a sudden you know it was like maybe ten minutes later I was like looked around and I was mm -hmm. like how did I get here yeah like, I don't yeah. remember anything yeah. I don't yeah. remember you know like the last time I remember I was on the other side of the park you know and I was <laughs> like so um, you know. Like, can we focus attention on something while doing something else and just kind of find that yeah, state? Yeah. Um, you know, when people talk about flow, the things they often recite are things like chess, um, rock climbing, reading, mm. writing. Anyone who's written a paper for six hours and looked over <laughs> and been like, it's not breakfast time anymore. It's 3 p.m. <laughs> has had that experience. But conversation is is something that comes up often. Um Yours was a one-way conversation with the book, but you did become very immersed. Mm -hmm. And because you kind of had an activity that was very fulfilling in of itself, but that you could do on autopilot because you've run 100,000 miles <laughs> in your life, right. it, it probably did help foster that. So reading right. is an outlet for, okay. for that. And I guess by extension, then like an audio book yeah. could be too. You, I mean, you had a very immersive experience, right, that's right, for sure, yeah. um, and would have had a lot of the qualities. Where you're not going to have quite the same thing is there's not really a challenge to listening sure. to a book in sure. the same way that there is um, in like having a conversation mm -hmm. with someone. But those immersive properties are very similar. Gotcha. Um, and people get it watching movies. Mm. And I'll tell you where people get a lot of flow experiences is video games. Oh, yeah. And, and that's kind of the same thing, though. You become so locked in, mm. um, you just become immersed in the task at hand. And whether that's getting your avatar 7,000 diamonds <laughs> or slaying beasts or 
finding Pokemon or whatever it is that you do um, in your particular game. Like that's actually how they've done a lot of the brain imaging stuff. Is they'll they'll have gamers wear these really cool headsets and uh, see what parts of the brain stay on and which ones take a nap. But yeah, no, that's it's definitely a, a very I'd say a parallel experience there okay Um, it mimics in a lot of ways but you were very focused on something and then therefore had that immersive experience cool all right um well i guess that brings us into our next one merging of action and awareness yeah so merging of action and awareness i always have a picture of steph curry up when i talk about this like with the youth groups okay um because that to me is it like the ball just knows where to go yeah. Like when you're watching Steph Curry or LeBron James or any of these ba- – I love basketball, so I use those <laughs> analogies a lot. Sure. But the ball just seems to know where to go. You don't watch Steph practice six hours a day you know, in, in San Francisco to, to develop this skill set. So when he's doing it, it's automatic, and it actually is. Like There's a thing called implicit memory, um, and that is your brain just simply knowing – how to do something from so much rote work. Like muscle um, memory. Muscle memory, like driving a car. Like what you described with the immersive experience with the audiobook, <laughs> people have all the time on the highway when they're like, oh, there's my exit. Wait, wasn't I 10 <laughs> miles further back? Well, you know how to drive a car and your brain knows it's called chunking. Your brain can basically chunk the amount of energy necessary and like the bits of data necessary to keep you driving in a straight line. It doesn't require many chunks of data, okay? <laughs> so it's going to let you do that, and your mind is free to wander elsewhere until someone cuts into your lane or there's a backup that suddenly, you know, you, you've, you have that feeling where you're like, whoa, I'm totally back in my own skin now. Yeah. Um, and that's because, yeah, you're, it's like you've come back online after doing whatever it is your brain was doing. Gotcha. Um, and gotcha. so it's, it's pretty cool. But, yeah, with, with this implicit memory, with this muscle memory that you describe um, – because of that, you don't. there's no separation between your action and your awareness. It's like if you want to speed up, you don't have to tell your legs to speed up. And you don't start talking about yourself like, oh, I have heavy legs today. You are all one piece mm-hmm. right now, mind, body, soul. It is all going. And that's because of all those hours of work and because your brain just knows what to do. Gotcha. The best way to know what it's like to not be have action and awareness merge is to write with your opposite hand okay. or – you know, shoot a basketball with your opposite hand or throw a baseball with your opposite hand. You can do it automatically with your right hand and not think about it if you're right-handed. Yep. You pick up that left hand, so you're like, okay, where does my elbow bend? Does my shoulder come back or forward? You know, which Do I need to lead with this leg or this leg? Yep. Your dominant hand, it's automatic. Yep. Um, and so a lot of the research, if you, if you ever hear about the yips, Yep. that golfers get yep. um, or that like baseball players like Genius. Chuck Knobloch and yep. a couple of these other guys get where suddenly they're like throwing the you know the second baseman or shortstop is throwing the ball like 50 feet over the first baseman's head <laughs> into the crowd and they're like shaking their head and then the ball comes to them again and they do it again but then they can play like long toss and throw a ball 300 feet <laughs> no yeah. problem like on a line and you're like what is going on basically they've lost an ability to tap into that implicit memory. And so now they're, they're trying to think through things. And the more you think with something that you already have kind of stored in your implicit memory, the worse it tends to be, mm. you know? Yeah. And that's why I'm one last basketball example. You see basketball players all have these free throw routines, you know, and you're, you're shooters who are 80, 90% shooters. It's going to be the same thing. If that step to the line, square your toes, spin the ball, bounce one, two, three, shoot. It's to keep it in that routine. It's to keep it in that implicit memory. There's no thinking. It's just what I always do. Right. I spin the ball. I go one, two, three. I come up. 
I flick. You know, <laughs> good things happen. Um, if I you watch Shaquille O'Neal at the line in his prime, he's trying something new every every game, right? And you know, shooting forty percent and scaring onlookers. So you know, there was no action and awareness merging for him. But you know, for for a runner in a flow experience, you're going to feel one with your body. You're going to feel like every action that you want to take is made instantaneously by your body there's no disconnect you're not thinking my lungs feel you know tight or my legs feel heavy or i don't feel good like it's just no i there was a move made and i responded yeah. you know purple purple's taking off i should go with purple okay i'm with purple so, yeah <laughs> right on uh, which again goes right into our next one sense of control yeah so you just when you are in a flow experience, you feel like you can do whatever it is you need to do in that moment. You are empowered. You are emboldened. Um, you feel like all your faculties, again, with that unambiguous feedback, your faculties are lined up. You can do what you need to do. Um, I, the picture I, I use when I speak to the youth group is this picture of Muhammad Ali in his prime just glowering over his oh, opponent. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, it looked like really egotistical in a lot of ways but that man knew what he could do and he always felt like he was the calm in the storm he felt like he had control um and there's this idea of the internal and the external locus of control that, that makes me sound smart when i say those terms but an inter yep. <laughs> <laughs> internal locus of control means that generally you believe the outcomes in life are the result of of your efforts of your hard work um of, of you simply handling what needs to be handled. An external locus of control person is going to be like, oh, no, it was fate or the universe is too hard luck. or, yeah, <laughs> it was luck. I didn't know that was going to happen, you know. Um, but when you're in a flow experience, you're going to be very internally driven and you're you're going to feel like whatever's thrown at you, you can handle. handle. You've, you've got this. Right on. All right. Um, loss of self-consciousness. We kind of talked a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, what's cool about this, though, is that I just said you feel totally in control and you're like on top of the world and I can handle anything. So you would assume that's leading to this huge egoism, right? Like I'm the man, but really you don't care that you're the man or woo man in that moment, you know? Um, so the loss of self-consciousness is that you don't really care what people around you are thinking, you know? There's no ego involved. Yeah. I, I don't care if I'm running around like a crazy man after the race. Like that's the aftermath <laughs> of flow, but I, I could have cared less. Yeah. I didn't care if my hair was flying in my face. I didn't care if people thought I was stupid in that moment for taking a risk. Like by the time I was fully immersed in this task, which really was gun to finish line, like I was all in. And however I looked to others, I, I didn't care. There, there was no ego involved. I wasn't chasing trophies at that point. I wasn't even chasing that school record yeah. that I thought, would be cool to have one day like that never factored into my thinking until afterwards when i looked and i was like oh school record was 841 that's nine seconds faster i guess i have it you know like that wasn't that wasn't part of it i wasn't even trying to get the girl i got her i have an awesome wife i love you love you macy but yeah none of that was factoring in i just wanted to be the best i could be on that day and just see what was possible mm -hmm. so yeah that's kind of the cool thing you feel empowered but you don't care how you look while empowered yeah 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 which you know uh, kind of talks about distortion of time as well mm -hmm. <laughs> which is our, our next point here yeah so with distortion of time um like i said with that down regulation your your prefrontal cortex is really in charge of you kind of having a sense of of how long how much time has passed what is to come all these sort of big big picture thoughts <laughs> when the blood supply no longer is coming there it's kind of like that um 
Salvador Dali painting with the clock <laughs> the just clock like melting <laughs> into the sand. Yep. Um, yeah, that's kind of what it feels like. Um, at, what's cool about that race, and I mean, it probably helps for sure that I've talked about it in the presentations and in the book and stuff. But I can I can tell you so many little details about the race. I can remember the song that was in my head. You know, I can remember what I was thinking with three laps to go. I can remember what it was like to see that mile split, all these things. But at the same time, that race flew by mm. mentally. Yeah. So it's extremely vivid, like I was in it for a long time. But those eight minutes and 32 seconds, like I could have stayed in them forever because – because things felt good, you know, yeah. and I, I wanted to see what was possible, and it was it was just such a rewarding experience. I wouldn't call it happy because you're breathing hard, you're working hard. Like yeah. even though the sense of effort is way diminished, you're obviously still doing it. Right. Um, but that's another part is as your brain kind of makes some of these decisions, you no longer have those negative associations with pain. Um, and so, I mean, you can kind of think of that, you know, like in the same thing. If I go ask you to deadlift 500 pounds – you're going to feel a lot of pain. Yeah, your hamstrings right. are going to be crying. Your arms are going to be weeping. There's going to be sweat beads. You're going to be like, this sucks. Why did this random guy show up on my porch and ask me to deadlift 500 pounds? But if I tell you your son is under a car oh, yeah. and you and I need to pick it up and right. we have to lift 500 pounds each to get your son out, you're not going to feel that. Right. You know, Because your brain is ultimately the arbiter of how you interpret that pain. Sure. Um, and so in that moment, I was choosing to interpret it very differently. <laughs> it was leading me to something really, really good. Mm -hmm. And so I was willing to accept it. And that sense of acceptance made it not hurt so much. You know? <laughs> yep. So. Yep. Right on. All right. Uh, so I guess that's our last one, intrinsic motivation. Yeah. So it's not intrinsic motivation by itself because you can definitely be extrinsically motivated and have flow experiences. Science shows you'll have less, but it's possible. Um, but this kind of sense that you're doing the activity for the pleasure that it brings you is super important. Um, and so you're, you're doing the activity for the sake of the activity. When you're climbing the rock, you're not climbing it, again, for the Instagram photo or to say, like, no one's ever sure. climbed this rock before. That might have been your goal at base camp, but it's hopefully not your goal when you're 70% of the way up the rock face. Right, right, right. Um, same thing with the race. Yeah, you might have said in the pre-race conference, yeah, man, I want to – I want to run my fastest 100-mile time ever or, you know, just for for the average runner out there, you know, you might have said, told family members, hey, I want to run this 50-miler in seven hours. Um, and if I do that, I might get a magic buckle or, you know, whatever <laughs> it is, whatever, you know, races have different incentives. Yep. Um, but when you're out there, if you're having flow, it's probably not because you're thinking about the buckle. It's because you are loving the activity yeah. for itself. Um, and that that just creates a different level of motivation and a different sense of purpose out there, you know? And if the act itself is pleasurable, you're going to want to do it. So what's cool about the autotelic and one of the reasons we talked about it a lot in the book was imagine this kind of virtuous circle. So you do something that you love, you get a great reward from it. That reward shows you that your potential is higher than you realized. Well, now you want to achieve that potential. So you got to train harder. By training harder, you up the challenge that you can handle with your increased skills. So now you chase even bigger fish. And you can, I mean, until injury or genetic limitations or life limitations kick in, you can kind of have this virtuous circle of constantly having this reinforcement from these really positive experiences that make you want to chase even bigger things. But you're willing to put in that work because you love the activity that you're doing, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I, I remember getting done with that race and being like, wow, I got when I do my long run tomorrow, I'm not an 856.3 
thousand meter person. I'm an 832, 3000 meter person. I guess I should work harder. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. there was no resting on my laurels. Like that was the last thing I wanted. Right. Like I wanted to be like, wow, if I could do this, what else can I do? You yeah, know? Absolutely. And so, yeah, it's just this really positive, self-affirming sort of thing that just pushes you up, up, up. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I was listening to something else the other day, and they were talking about um, Alex Harnell Harnel, mm-hmm. um, in Free Solo. Mm-hmm. And uh, did you get to see that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, he, he does that first attempt, and he starts going up, and, like, the cameras are around and stuff, mm-hmm. and he's just like, you know, he wasn't feeling it. He's just yeah. like, I, you know, this, I can't. Not today, like you know, he called. He was like, you know, it wasn't in the, his right space. Mm-hmm. And then the second time, I mean, you could just see he was just in. He was in the zone. Yeah, I mean, he was just flowing. That guy was just yeah. moving up that rock, and you know, there was nothing else that except yeah. for where that next hold was. What yeah. was he doing with that foot? You yeah. know, like he was just in the moment. Yeah, which I mean, that was that was insane. Yeah. And and you know. To, to tie that all together, what allowed him to have that flow experience, which is what we'll talk about, is you've got to be able to put the work in. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I loved about that film is they showed him, you know, when he was in his harness and everything, how many times he had to practice that leap. Yeah. That one leap. Right, that right, leap right. that's going to make or break his entire climb. Oh, yeah. And he failed so many times. Right. And that's with knowing you have the safety of a harness. Yeah. You know, you're clipped in. You're going to be okay. Yeah. Um, and to just fail over and over and over and over again, <laughs> and then to nail it on the day it obviously counts the most. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's there's no going back if right. you miss that oh, jump, and God. there's no way to get up that wall yep. without that jump. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a thing of beauty. Yes, um, yeah, absolutely. So, no, he's he's a, he'd probably be the best example. You should get him on your podcast <laughs> if you get a theme song. I bet he'll come. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh. Uh, that's uh, we'll, we'll see about that. <laughs> work on it. Um, yeah. So, um, did you want to touch on anything else there? Yeah. You know, I mean, we talked about the down regulation, and so I think it's important to realize that as much as this gets put in the sports psychology component or positive psychology, there's different fields that love flow. Um, Psychology is brain chemistry and brain-based just as much as it is personality stuff. Um, And so, you know, when we're talking about things like downregulation, like I remember when I was doing research for the book, I hated writing that chapter. I wanted to believe flow was something that was like this beautiful, mythical, like transcendental, organic (laughs) sort of thing, you know? Um, And the thought that my brain was just like, "Mm, no blood to the prefrontal cortex played a big role in it at first was like, it it hurt, honestly. It kind of of bummed me out. Um, But then the more I read about it and the more I like kind of processed it myself, I was like, well, of course it is, you know, like it it has to be that way, you know, Um, but I didn't, I didn't. Like when you hear that stuff, you never want it to diminish the experience that you're having, you know, in the same way that like. When someone, this is a, a sad example, but you know, like if someone is using illicit drugs, mm. okay, and they talk about, man, I just had this in crazy transcendental experience, man, and I like ate these crazy shrooms and I became one with the house and like all these things. It's like, well, if I were to look at your brain chemistry right now, it's literally things that were already in your brain being shuffled in a different direction. I'm not saying you're not one with your house now, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, your brain had some changes done to its chemistry, and now these are the outcomes. Well, when we run, we release endocannabinoids. Mm. Those are the cousins of cannabis. They're just made by our brain, are non-addictive, and 
don't have any side effects like consumption of massive amounts of potato chips. <laughs> okay? And we, you know, and we get endorphins. Okay? Yep. This is our brain's way and whether you subscribe to the Daniel Lieberman running man theory or what whatever. I don't I don't I don't even care about that debate. <laughs> what we do know is that the brain rewards and the brain, you know, promotes you doing certain things and the brain seems to really like you running. Okay? <laughs> Um, and it and it gives you these rewards, and so you get your dopamine hit, you get your serotonin hit, you get your endocannabinoids, you get all this good stuff, and it causes no harm, and you get really cool experiences from it. You know, <laughs> so at the end of the day, those have a physiological basis, and that's okay. Yep, yep, very good. Um, all right. Um, let's see. Um, are we down to yeah we can talk about who gets to experience flow the most okay yeah so um i'll i'll interview myself again so phil tell me about <laughs> who might experience flow the most well you're lucky dr mike experiences flow the most <laughs> <laughs> he did rest your soul dr mike i bet i hope you had a flow-filled life um but yeah so he kind of outlined what he called his autotelic personality this was some of his later work um but he noticed that there were certain traits that people who had who experienced flow more often had. Um, ooh, and that brings to a cool point too. So Dr. Mike realized that people who are curious, who are engaged, who are more um, achievement or goal-oriented, who are more intrinsically motivated, who enjoy mastering new skills, that one's so important. Like if you have that mastery orientation, like it's not necessarily about the accolades. It's about, hey, how good can I get it at a chosen task? Um, people who appreciate challenges, people who enjoy life experiences for more than just the pursuit of like power, wealth, or accolades, um, people who are optimistic, um, people who have an internal locus of control, like we talked about earlier, um, and then people who are kind of low anxiety and high conscientiousness. So um, they tend not to be too fretful. They tend not to let the moment become too big for them. Um, but they also have very much a sense of order, which would kind of be that conscientiousness. They're aware of things. They like things tidy, <laughs> if you will. Um, but one of the cool things that Dr. Mike um, also looked at and his researchers and, God, he ended up with this database of like 40,000 test subjects over the years. So wow. there's a lot of flow research. Um, was that people are actually happier when they have more frequent flow experiences, even if the intensity is lower than just like real sporadic aha hallelujah sort of flow moments so like the flow moment i described to you um and all, and everybody listening to this would would kind of be that big hallelujah mm -hmm. i mean again it changed the trajectory of my life but i also had a long run you know last weekend with four friends and we talked for two and a half hours <laughs> and you're like wow where did the time go yeah you know yeah. and we were in a beautiful place and kind of exploring trails but also knowing where they're going and so you get a little bit of that sense of curiosity but you also have that sense of comfort um because one way that you could snap out of flow is for some major deterrent you know we talked about that um you know wanting to have that unambiguous feedback mm -hmm. i remember i was on a run with with my old dog kashi and weird we were new to brevard we were exploring a trail i had never been on and I was absolutely loving it. It was just a beautiful day. It was like 30 degrees, super crisp. Um, the dogs, you know, he, he was probably 11 or 12 years old. This was like his last good long run. And, uh, oh, man, we were having a great time. And then the trail that I was on didn't match the description of what I thought it was going to look like. And I was like, I don't know if I can make this a loop. 
if I can't make this a loop, I got to turn around. And I got a dog. And this dog's 12 years old. And we're nine miles in. And it's at least six to seven more back to the car. And it was gone. Mm-hmm. You know? I totally lost it. Yeah. I freaked out. And I was on the right trail. It just didn't match the map. Everything would have been totally fine. And, but, but because I didn't know that, I got ambiguous feedback, which is, I feel great. But if I don't turn around right now, the dog might die and this trail might be wrong. <laughs> and so, yeah. Um, you know, that can... That can really, really snap you out of these, oh, yeah. out of those states. Um, but yeah, there was probably a point about a minute ago that I was trying to make with that, and I have forgotten that. So <laughs> you're like, "Oh, that'll make it a good point." <laughs> well, I'll oh, think of that. what I was going to say, what I was saying is that was, you know, those were examples of smaller flow moments. Oh yeah. And the more often that you kind of get into those zones, the better off you are. Like there, there's just higher outcomes and quality of life. You, people report greater life satisfaction. At the end of the day, I mean, that's a really huge part of, of what we're doing. We're trying yeah. to have lives that are that are filled with meaning and that bring us joy and satisfaction. Yeah. Um, and so being able to put yourself into those situations, and it doesn't have to be all running. Again, it can be rock climbing. It can be chess, gardening. God, there's a lot of research on flow and gardening. Um, and, you know, there can be too much of a good thing. Video gamers who spend 40 hours a week in flow in the basement, never seeing the sun, eating cheesy puffs in mom's basement. Yeah, it's not good, but – if you can find that balance where you're achieving flow frequently without sacrificing any of your family's health or happiness or your health and happiness, then I think, I think it's a good thing and find yeah. it in as many things as you can, you know? Totally. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, your, your next point in here talks about connection with, uh, peak performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you want to look at kind of correlation and causation, I would put this in the correlation. Um, a lot of people, who have flow experiences, uh, I'm sorry, who have a peak performance, Leo Manzano getting the silver medal in the Olympics, um, Ellie Greenwood in an ultra marathon, like where she's just crushing people's souls. Um, I should, I should, yeah, if I do a follow up, I'll, uh, I once interviewed Camille Heron, like she would be a good one to, to talk to. I think she goes into that place a lot. You know, these people, when they're setting their hundred mile world records or they're setting the track on fire or whatever very frequently ref- like say they were in a flow experience and then they can also tell you a time that they pr'd and it hurt like hell the entire <laughs> time every step was just miserable but they were so physically primed that they could do it yeah. um and so in a, in a lot of ways you know we i would call flow performance enhancing but i can't guarantee you're going to get a flow experience so if you find yourself in one, ride the wave. <laughs> Enjoy it. Um, and again, these, the personality traits that we talked about, the three antecedents, th- those will all put you in a state of mind where flow can happen, mm-hmm. um, and that can definitely help with, with a peak experience, a peak performance. Um, totally. But you can also grind things out you know, really well when you're in a you know, 120K race called the Death March or something. You know, <laughs> It's probably not going to be all peaches and cream. No, um, no. But – you know, <laughs> but yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, it, it sets the stage flow is really good at doing that because of that positive feedback loop that we were talking about. Um, and you know, there's, there's an, another idea and I don't know if it's been touched on in this podcast or at all, but some of your readers and, and listeners have probably heard of like the central governor model, um, Tim Noakes, who basically says that, you know, like your brain in many ways acts as like a car's governor 
would or anybody who's ever ridden on a school bus that can't go over 45 miles per hour <laughs> that's the governor that's stopping it the the engine has plenty of power it would be happy to do 85 but the governor says no we got to keep the kids safe and we got to conserve fuel so we're maxing out at this tim noakes basically says the brain will not allow itself to be put in danger because of overheating um and so it will just keep slowing you down until you're no longer a threat to the integrity of the brain um and so people have been like, oh, well, but if you had a flow experience, couldn't you override that? And the science so far says, uh, no, no, you can't. So don't worry that if you get in a flow experience, you're just going to like burn yourself out and like next thing you know, like an appendage falls off or anything like that. That's, that can't happen. That's good. Um, but it could be that if your lifetime potential was to run 832 in a 3K, you're going to get it that day. Um, but apparently I couldn't run 831 because I never <laughs> ran faster again. So, but yeah, at least you had that one. Experience. But I had that moment and I got an 833 on my resume too. So watch out world. Um, oh man. All right. Well, let's, uh, as you succinctly put it in your outline, let's put this all together now yeah, for the athlete. Let's do that. Yeah. So, you know, I think the, no, I feel like I'm, I always feel like uh, like a football coach or someone when you say, well, we controlled the controllables. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. Um, so it's cliched, but it's it's actually really true in the case of flow. So, you know, um, again, you want to know what your clear goal is and do you have the training to back that goal? So, again, you can talk a big game, but if you don't have it, it's not worth anything. And also, if you've put in a ton of training and you're just like, well, I'll just see what happens, you're probably selling yourself short. So you want to be really realistic in knowing what you can do on a given day um, and and then really trying to find, you know, what's that challenge. And then you want to put yourself in a position to achieve whatever your maximal skill is. So, again, if you're if you're a great hundred mile runner, Aaron, when you're in peak shape, race 100 miles. Don't don't race the 10K <laughs> and don't race the 240. Right. You know, if, yep. if if this is your event and you know this is what you're best at, go after it. But also know that the, the skills that you've developed along the way of getting to being a great 100-mile runner, if you do take on that next challenge, say 240-mile race, is going to serve you very well. You know, And so in that one, I know it's harder because, like, well, how will I have a clear goal for an event I've never done before? Right. You know? Right. And the answer then is, well, switch to those process orientations. Switch to that mastery orientation. You know, figure out what can I do in the moment, in the minute? How can I stay engaged with this task? Because um, that may be one of the, the biggest things for you again. Totally. You're going to be out there for several days. Yep. It's, it's easy to no longer want to be out there 37 hours in or 52 hours in. So, you know, have you practiced those attentional skills? Do you, do you have your nutrition dialed in? Do you have your hydration dialed in? Do you have your pacers lined up? Control those controllables, right. you know? That one's, that one's huge. And so, you know, that kind of goes along with, like, developing a plan. Um, positive self-talk is huge for these kind of things, you know. I love how many runners have a mantra that they recite over and over again. And when you find yourself slipping away, go to it, you know. Call on that thing. Um, you know, I had one. I did a virtual half marathon um, on my road. The Tally Road Half Marathon. Watch out. I was the only participant. So I was both I the winner that. and the loser. Um, and I was coming off an injury um, earlier that, that winter. And so this was like an April race in the early pandemic times. Um, and I just kept saying the integrity of the stride. The integrity of the stride. So whenever I was feeling super tired, I was like, 
integrity of the stride. Do I have it? Yeah. Is my stride feel flowy? You know, does it feel good? Yep. And that was a cue because that, that brought me back into the activity. It gave my brain and body something to scan. Well, how is the integrity of the stride? Yeah. Is it good? Okay. It was good. Keep going. <laughs> okay. I'm feeling a little tired again. Let's think about the integrity of the stride. Yeah. And so if you can find a mantra that either has deeply personal meaning to you, so let's say you dedicate a race to a fallen relative um, or a cause greater than you. Let's say you're running for Ukraine. Tap into that. Remember why you're out there. Are you out there because for every mile you run, you're raising 20 more dollars for refugees? Well, wow, tap into that. That's huge yep. because that's not about you. Ego is dead yep. in that one. That's about something more. I'm sure you're not like, well, I'm going to get bragging rights. I raised 12000 for the Ukraine. <laughs> they only raised 11000 No, you idiots. Combined, you raised 23000 This is really good stuff, <laughs> right. right? And so, yeah, find a cause bigger than itself. Um, I'm going to loop back real quick because that also brings me to the one time that the challenge skill balance doesn't have to be lined up. And that is when there's deeply personal meaning attached to something. So I, later that same year, that the big race I had was in January of 2003. In April of 2003, I got to race my conference 5K. Now, my coach was smart. He realized UNCA had a terrible track program, but we had a few good athletes. Let's just try to qualify them for regionals, which was like the first round of the NCAA tournament for track. And... Um, we're not going to do doubles. We're not going to do triples. We're just going to give everybody a chance to have one really, really good race. So I went into a race, and I was fresh. Um, and it's a Saturday, like the second to last race on Saturday. So everybody else has run the 10K, the, the 1500, or the steeplechase. They're wiped, okay? But there's a, there's a ticket on the line here for, for NCAA regionals. This is huge. And, yeah, I, I still wasn't even favored on paper being fresh, but I knew I would be in the hunt. And I was able to control the race, like, kind of the last two laps, uh, this really fast kid from Liberty makes a move, 500 meters to go. I'm totally locked in, though. I get in his, like, tail, get on his tail, hear the bell, come up, 300 meters to go. I'm like, you know, believe in yourself, believe in yourself. No one would ever fault you for trying this. And I got to 150 meters to go right at the steeple pit, and I remember thinking, this is the lane of high hopes. Lane two, <laughs> lane of high hopes. And I went out there, and I just did my best Michael Johnson impersonation. That's what I was thinking in my head, be Michael Johnson, all the way to the line. And I won the race, got to go to NCAA Regionals, oh. where I proceeded to get um, dead last. Um, and when I crossed the line, they said, that concludes day one. So that was awesome. <laughs> but in that moment, that goal meant so much to me. Of course. That... I was able to tap in even though everyone else's legs already had a lot of junk in them. <laughs> and so if you do go to your local 5K or you do go to your local 50K or 100K or 100 miler because all you trail people are awesome, you know, <laughs> if it's really – like especially if it's like the hometown race or this is the first trail race my mom has ever watched me at or this is – you know, I just got engaged and this will be our first race together. Like even if the challenge isn't as great as it might normally be, it's going to have that personal significance to you and that counts for so much. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah. I just wanted to. No, that's be- that. that's brilliant. And um, your your last point um, is something I you taught me. Um, and the you know, point being, stay present and uh, be solution oriented. And Phil coached me in 2016 through the B series, and it was my first hundred miler. And uh, that was the you know we had a talk before uh, Grindstone, and he was like, you know, I need you to stay in the moment and stay present. And that was you know like at at the moment you know you're like what does that even mean? <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, you say that to somebody and you're like, 
what, what do I do? How do I do this? But then, you know, when you're in the race itself, it makes total sense mm-hmm. because you have to problem solve on your feet. You have to be present yeah. and engage your mind to acknowledge I need X, Y, or Z so that I can keep going. Right. You know, I don't have to worry about, you know, what's coming ahead because I need to deal with what's happening now so I can get there. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that, so staying present, you know, that's stuck with me forever. And, you know, I have that conversation with anybody I coach, <laughs> Yeah, you know, so that point it was driven home to me by you <laughs> in 2016. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm grateful to hear that. Um, and you know, that kind of ties in with, with the one other thing I would mention under the control, the controllables, which is it's really important to kind of find the optimal level of arousal. So if you kind of imagine like an inverted U, um, if the arousal is too low, you're going to be in that super chill, relaxed mode. Be like, oh, yeah, you know, this race is cool. I'll, I'll warm up when, yeah, sure, it's <laughs> fine. And the other side is, oh, my God, I'm going to be racing 100 miles, and I've never done it before, and I really don't like gels that much, and I don't think I can eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and who wants to run 100 miles? In between there is that really sweet spot where you're like, this is meaningful, I'm excited. Yeah. I want to get out there. I want to compete. This matters to me, and I'm going to do everything I can to stay present and be, yeah, solution focused. I'm going to I'm going to be aware of my surroundings. I'm going to take things one at a time. And if something goes awry, I'm not going to go into that, you know, panic, fight, flight, or freeze mode. I'm going to go into a place of how do I get from mile 48 to the aid station at 51, and nothing else matters because right now I'm in mile 48. And, you, you, yeah, you got to shrink those goals down yeah. sometimes. I mean, right. you, you hear elite marathoners talk about it all the time, taking it mile by mile, and, right. and they mean it. Oh, yeah. you like know, you it's, said, chunking. It's, yeah. 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 yeah, you just you take things as as they come. Absolutely. Um, a station to A station or, you know, point to point, whatever it is, yeah. you know, chunking in the miles, whatever makes the most sense to your brain. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, you know, one of the cool things, again, if you've put in all this work, like you're going to be able to go into autopilot for some of that. You know, your brain does have a finite capacity for being fully locked in and engaged. Um, You know, one of the skills they they work um, with elite marathoners a lot is, and you always hear, you know, it's a marathon is divided in two halves. It's the first 20 miles and the last 10K. But so much of that is attentional. You Mm -hmm. know, if we, if you haven't practiced that mindfulness, if you haven't practiced that ability to maintain attention, I mean, you better be on autopilot for a long time. Taking it in, you're engaged with the task, you're engaged with your legs, but you're not wasting energy wondering what every person is going to do. You're like, huh, their breathing sounds like mine. I'm good. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. And in the early parts of any race, particularly the ultra races, I think that's so important, is to really be in tune with your body and mind in the early stages, but not focus so much attention that by the time you get to the halfway point, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm done, man. <laughs> Like, no, you've got to have some. You got to have yeah. some free moments in there to be able totally. to kind of recharge. Yeah, and your brain, like you said, especially because you only have so much capacity within, yeah. <laughs> in yourself mentally to stay oh, that absolutely. engaged. And, absolutely. You know, so yeah, it's it's really important to uh, not only pace yourself physically but mentally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's probably the most succinct way to to put it. Like know when you need to be kind of engaged, totally engaged, and full throttle engaged. Right. You know, and yep. and work that balance well. Good point. Um, all right, so let's talk about barriers to success. We're kind of wrapping and Yeah, yeah, we'll wrap this up on these last couple points. But um, certainly, you know, I mentioned it briefly, there's a lot of distractions in our culture. <clears throat> the phone and social media are the easy ones to point out. But, you know, we've never lived in a more luxurious, laden time ever. <laughs> you know, life can be pretty easy. And so it can be pretty easy to not want to do much. 
you know, everything can kind of be done for us. Um, sure. And I say that from an upper middle class white perspective, <laughs> well aware of that. But he, really across all levels in, you know, the people that, that I see and I work with, like there's a high level of luxury. And so it, we take things for granted. We don't have to work that hard to get a lot of basic daily needs met. And because of that, our attention span is low because um, it can be. Um, True. And so that's, that's a big one. Um, you know, we're just we're not fully present enough of the time. You know, this entire conversation, I have been totally focused on talking to you. It feels good. Yeah. It's, it's really totally. nice to just have yeah. a chat. It is. I'm I, glad you said let's I'm do this in person. Not, <laughs> I, yeah, totally. I yeah. didn't want to do this on Zoom because then I'm like, oh, are the kids? What? what right. Ah, right. What's going on? Yeah. You no, know, is that the dog? Oh, my God. Basically, take the dog. Make the dog be quiet. You know, it's all of that. Yep. But just sitting on a porch, looking at you, making eye contact. Yep. That doesn't happen that often. No, it you doesn't. You don't get to just sit it with doesn't. someone and talk with them for an hour and a half. Right. So learning to be present and to appreciate that and to engage um, with a person or a task or a hobby or your work. My God, how much more enjoyable is work if you like what you're doing? And even if you don't like it, at least engage with it. Because if you're just sitting there daydreaming about the stuff you're going to do at home, how exciting is Netflix? (laughs) Are people going to say at your funeral, my God, Aaron Sapp watched a lot of Netflix, (laughs) and we miss him for it. No, they're going to say Aaron was a coach. He was a friend to hundreds of thousands of people because he's a friendly guy, and he made people's lives better by engaging with them and helping them achieve their goals, not by using the voice command on his Roku. So that's a barrier. It is a barrier. It is a barrier. Um, You know, I mentioned the ambiguous feedback with the Peachtree Road Race example. Right. I love GPS technology. Happy to pitch Koros anytime you need. <laughs> They're fantastic. Um, Garmin's are great too. Don't get me wrong. But man, um, how often does it happen when someone's on a run and suddenly like, oh my god, it's, my watch isn't reading anymore. <laughs> this is terrible. I don't know where. I don't know where I am. Suddenly, <laughs> no, you do. You're on the trail. You're on the same trail you were on two minutes ago. Like you don't need that feedback from the watch every second. Right. You don't need your heart rate monitor to give you an accurate reading every second. <laughs> Okay, you don't even need a heart rate monitor, but if you use it <laughs> and something gets glitchy, it's okay. You know? Yep. You have all these awesome internal feedback systems like your heart and lungs <laughs> and muscles. Trust them, you know? And that will keep you going in the same direction. So, right on. That's that ambiguous feedback. Um, <laughs> my favorite one, though, and this is important, guys. <laughs> if you actively try to seek flow all the time, your odds of getting flow are lower. <laughs> And it took us a while to wrap our heads around that. But, but I mean, it was they've looked, of course, because Dr. Mike researched everything. Why <laughs> is it that people who actively seek flow don't seek, get flow? And I think the simple answer is that's not engaging with the task, you know? All right. Um, if I'm out there being like, why aren't I in flow? <laughs> why is this not happening? I should be flowing. Why am I not flowing? Well, you're, you're, now you're thinking about flow. You're not right. thinking about running. Yep. Um, and just know that you can snap in and out of flow in different experiences um you know if you're having a rough patch at mile 42 you're trying to get to that aid station at 47 it may be dark dark days and then ooh, your brain gets a little tomato soup and a pepsi in you and next thing you know (laughs) you're feeling good and you get right back into that zone so don't don't worry if you snap out of it because that can be a barrier 
you can get back in it. It um, ebbs and flows. Yeah, there it is. We were, we were waiting for something like that. <laughs> it took us an hour plus, but we got there. So I'm glad. I'm glad. And then just dishonesty with the self would kind of be the last thing that I was thinking is a good barrier. And by that, I mean, usually that's probably bravado. going to be like, I got this. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I've been doing plenty. of. No, I've run eight miles last week. But I can do this 100-miler <laughs> because – I'm the man. <laughs> and then you go out there and you're like, this is, this, no, no, this is terrible. So physiology doesn't lie. Um, you can't just fake your way into flow. It's not going to happen. Um, you've got to be, you got to be able to be really, really real with yourself. Um, or, else, skills. or else bad things. Yeah, got to have them skills or else <laughs> those challenges always, always win. Right on. Um, do you want to touch on flow in the non-competitive environment? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's possible, you know. I think the competition, just because of the challenge skill balance, really kind of is what it's easiest to talk about it in. Um, and a lot of people have had flow experiences in that context. So someone can be listening to my race and be like, I've never been on a track, but I remember I did the Wild Woods 30K and I felt the same way. And so there's that relatability. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, anything that you're passionate about, you're like certainly this can happen if you enjoy the motion of running if you're intrinsically motivated if you're in a being in a beautiful place can help being in a place where there's less distractions um things that kind of um attract to the senses um things that are it's weird because you would think oh i'm going somewhere new to run this is going to lead to flow my gosh i've never been to uh the john muir trail i'm gonna go run the john muir trail why am I not in flow? Well, you're not in flow because your brain can't go on autopilot because it has no idea where you are. <laughs> Run the John Muir Trail a few times, mm. and then you're going to get immersed in that beauty and everything. So it tends to be something that's familiar, but maybe with a little, like a little twist or a little quirk or you know, a little connector between things that are familiar. You need to feel safe, though, mm. you know, because your brain, if it's going to downregulate, I mean, we're turning higher functions off. Yeah. And the brain is not going to allow that to happen if you're in an unfamiliar environment or an unsecure environment, you know? Yeah. So, um, but man, yeah, I mean, people get it certainly on the track mm. because that's a, that's a safe, constant environment. The motion is consistent. You can lock in. You're going to get good feedback. Yeah. Um, but then also, you know, on like a familiar trail that you love or a country road that you love, um, it's going to be harder in a noisy city. That's yeah. for sure. Um, you're going to get it in Central Park. You're not going to get it on Fifth Avenue. Well, and, you know, I think something that you said to, um, you know, the athletes I coach when we had you on uh, was that you should have an intent or a purpose to each run. That's Mm going to help you, Mm -hmm. you know, just kind of uh, gear towards flow because you have an intention or a goal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you're the rudderless ship, Every now and then you catch a good wave, I guess, and mm. you make progress, and it's like, woo, that was fun. <laughs> um, but certainly if I have my map and compass and a rudder, I'm going to be able to direct the boat a lot better, and then I'm planning on catching those waves. So I hadn't planned on a wave analogy, but flow. <laughs> there, there it is. is. There it is. <laughs> what can you do? Excellent. Any other thoughts that you want to include? Yeah, I mean, I'll just add that, like, if you want to buy my book, that's great. I'm not selling anything though. <laughs> Flow is not a product, you know. It's yep. not it's not a commodity. There's there's too many commodities out there. This is not a this is not a magic bullet. 
This is not a one-size-fits-all approach. This is a piece of positive psychology that can make you feel better about the things that you already love, you know? Yep. Um, and so there's a lot of good stuff, like, you know, do more research. I mean, we, we, I was joking about, you know, the Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus with, with their projects, but, you know, there, there are so many people in that field out there that are bringing good stuff to light. Go listen to it. Go read Absolutely. it because you're going to find something in all of these different little niches that are going to make you a better runner and a better athlete. You know, you might listen to a Brene Brown, you know, TED talk and suddenly be like, I want to feel vulnerable. I really do. I love you, Aaron. You know, and that's going to happen. Um, and that's going to make you feel better. You may go out on a trail run and have a flow experience. You're going to feel better. Yeah. You may listen to a podcast about youth sports in Norway and be like, God, my child's going to be so much happier yeah. if I change the goals and challenges yep. to, hey, let's just master playing the game of soccer. Let's not master beating opponents. You know? Yep. And so, yeah, just, just be, be an open book. You know, anybody who tells you that their way is the be-all, end-all is probably lying or delusional and therefore not honest with themselves and therefore probably not having flow experiences themselves. <laughs> so don't trust them. But, yeah, no, I think flow is a beautiful concept. I, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that I had that kind of transformative flow moment. And I'm grateful that I had a friend who pushed me in the right direction and let my curiosity kind of run wild with it and just get to see what this all is because now i get to share it with others and i know that people can now kind of understand some of these cool experiences and maybe have them more frequently they have them more frequently they have a higher quality of life suddenly we got better eulogies at the end they weren't watching netflix they were out on the trails awesome man well uh phil's book running flow uh i'm gonna put that in the show notes so people can check it out um phil where can they find you contact you reach you or should they just not bother <laughs> uh, no you're always welcome to follow me i guess on instagram okay. at philip ladder uh, l-a-t-t-e-r um yeah i mean you're gonna see a lot of pictures of mountains uh goats because i got a little farm and uh children <laughs> yeah yep i'm a i'm a super fun follow but i'm out there um he's on strava too i'm on strava feel free to strava stock I'm probably Strava stalking you already. So, yeah. <laughs> Excellent, Phil. I want to thank you so much for your time and sharing this with us. Absolutely, man. It's been my pleasure. And, uh, yeah, maybe I'll write a book someday again. And Second edition. Combat, yeah. <laughs> Running Flow 2.0. That <laughs> terrible name. I hope they come up with a better one. I need a new editor. If you're out there. <laughs> thanks again, buddy. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Again, my thanks to Phil. Uh, what, a, what a fun conversation. Um, apologize if uh, the uh, the weather in the background um, became a distraction. Uh, we were recording outside and uh, the winds picked up as a uh, storm was blowing in. So hopefully that wasn't too distracting for you all. But um, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, as I said, I really enjoyed recording it with Phil. Um, you know, it was great being face to face. And, uh, it really did make me more engaged in the conversation. And Phil is just such a, a great person and, uh, you know, and conversationalist. So it, I really enjoyed talking with Phil, especially on this topic and hearing more about it. And, um, I hope you can take a lot away from it. So thank you, Phil. Uh, as for me, um, my goodness, um, <laughs> it's, uh, I think I say that every time. <laughs> my goodness um <clears throat> busy with um finalizing everything for bigfoot 
uh, we leave um, next week. God, I am uh, recording this on Wednesday, August 3rd, and we leave on Wednesday, August 10th. So a week from today, we'll be in Washington, and uh, I am just so excited. Um, Man, um, you know, like people ask me, how do you wrap your head around 200 miles? And I, I don't think you do. I really don't. I don't think you try to. Um, I think you have to stay present and not worry about, uh, you know, mile 209 in this case. Um, you have to worry about the mile you're in and what's going on then and what you need then. Uh, so I have come to the realization that uh, you don't wrap your head around it. You just let it come and be as present as you can, as, as Phil was talking about. You know, be present. Um, so... Um, that's, that's how I'm going into it. I'm going into it with excitement, um, anticipation rather than, um, nervousness and, and anxiety. Um, I think that just creates too much, uh, possibilities for creating the wrong state of mind, you know, for not creating, uh, a positive environment or, you know, not even potentially setting yourself up to find flow. So with that all said, I am just, um, going to, you know, execute my plan. Uh, you know, I've, I've sit down with a spreadsheet to kind of think about time on feet and how much time I will spend in between aid stations and how much nutrition and hydration I will need between them. So I have a plan. Um, now we all know that that can go right out the window. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, uh, contingencies are there, uh, fail safes hopefully are in place. Uh, I've, I've got, you know, so much gear. Um, I think next week I'll kind of just do a, a pre-race talk about it, you know, talk about my gear and, and my, my plan and everything like that. So you can kind of hear, and then we'll do a a post-race, um, podcast and talk about, you know, how things went, what was the reality. Um, so, um, really looking forward to that. Really, really am. So, um, you know, stay tuned for that. Um, the August newsletter is out. Um, if you haven't subscribed, you can do so on my website. There is uh, on the front page, there is a place that you can submit to subscribe to the newsletter it is free comes out once a month and it has, uh, articles that I've written, um, about training, um, gear reviews, tips, strategies, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I try to pack that with as much information as I can. So the newsletter is out. You can sign up there. If you uh, haven't seen the newsletter, I've posted on social media, posted on Strava. Um, it is also posted on my website. Uh, you can go to the uh, the contact or connect with me page, and all the newsletters are archived uh, there, as well as all the old podcasts are also archived on the website. So um, you know, please subscribe. That will be in your inbox. As I said, it's free. Uh, it's you know a resource that I try to put out there for everybody, uh, and just as with the podcast, uh, if you have uh, topics or things you want to hear about uh, for either the podcast or the newsletter, please reach out. And again, you can do so through any avenue: direct message me through Instagram, Facebook. Uh, you can uh, leave a comment on one of my runs on Strava. Um, email me runningpains at gmail dot com. You can connect with me through the website. Uh, however, it's easier for you. Uh, love to hear from you. Um, you know, feedback is always welcome. So, um, I really do. You know, I try to get on some guests that, that people want to hear about or topics that they want to learn about. So if you have stuff that you want to hear about, learn about, or for me to write about, by all means, please let me know. 
Um, I thank you for that. And I thank you to all my Patreon supporters. Uh, my goodness, you know, like that's how I can do this stuff. That's how I can continue the podcast, how I can continue the newsletter and providing these resources. Uh, is It's a help from, um, you know, the uh, the Patreon supporters. They help me keep this going, you know, so I can keep publishing episodes and uh, keep my website up and the newsletter going. So thank you to Patreon supporters. Um, you know, there's a, a link uh, on the, uh, the website. If you want to become a Patreon supporter, I greatly appreciate it. You know, uh, all podcasts say that, but it, it really is. It does. It makes a huge difference. It makes this, you know, uh, feasible and possible. So I uh, thanks to them. Uh, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month. You know, everything goes right into the, the till and keeps this thing going. So thank you. Um, so far as coaching goes, um, I, I can't really onboard anybody right now, um, you know, as I'm going to Bigfoot, but if you are interested in talking about coaching, uh, for the future, um, let's do so. And, you know, after I return from Bigfoot, uh, yeah, I'm going to continue to put out the podcast episodes. So, uh, next Thursday, you're going to get one and the following Thursday, you're going to get one. Um, I can't guarantee how, um, <laughs> how, uh, cohesive <laughs> I will be, uh, for, uh, the, the podcast that comes out in two weeks as that will be right after Bigfoot. And I'm going to try to do a synopsis of what went on. Uh, and I may not even be able to process what has just happened, but <laughs> we'll go over it and we'll talk about it. And it may have even another episode in which maybe I'm more cohesive and can put together, uh, uh, intelligent thoughts and kind of even process further what transpired. But, uh, I'm just excited to go. I really am. So, um, but yeah, please, you know, if you're interested in coaching, let's have a conversation after Bigfoot, you know, after I get done with Bigfoot. So that's, uh, you know, August 13th is the race. So, um, after I get back, love to have that conversation. Um, and, uh, other than that, uh, man, uh, <laughs> I, you know, again, the, the, the focus is on Bigfoot. So, um, you know, let's just get out there and let's get it done. That's what I want to do let's just get out there and get it done, you know? So, uh, prayers, thoughts, everything. Appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, I just really looking forward to trying to get through this, this, you know, this new, uh, adventure, this new, uh, task. So, um, thanks again to Phil Ladder for coming on. Thank you guys for listening, for being a part of this podcast. Um, if you, uh, would share it, that sure does help, uh, rate it and review it on, uh, whatever listening platform you use. Um, and if you have a listening platform that it's not on that you would prefer to listen to on, please let me know. Uh, you know, I try to get it up on as many listening platforms as I can, but there are so many out there. It's, uh, you know, it's hard to, to know. So please just let me know and I'll try to get it up there for you. So thank you guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of this journey. And, uh, I will talk to you next week. <laughs>